Hello and welcome to Please Expand and uh, welcome to Julia's first uh, video representation. Yeah, I have to say it's really daunting to be recording <laughs> and to see my face here. Um, but yes, uh, welcome back. <laughs> Thank yes, you for inviting back. me again. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I mean, how could I not? Um, I received endless emails about I should get you back. Where's Julia? We want Julia. Bring Julia back. I had no choice. The public spoke. I'm flattered. <laughs> so Julia, today I'll be interviewing, as you know very well, uh, Michael Strevens, who is a professor of philosophy at New York University, NYU, mm -hmm. and uh, ha who is the author of a book uh, called The Knowledge Machine, How Irrationality Created Modern Science, published in 2020. Yes. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about him? Uh, well, he's a professor of philosophy in the philosophy department, obviously, and he specializes, so he writes on and he teaches uh, philosophy of science, which is the field of philosophy where philosophers engage with the scientific activity or with scientific results or anything that scientists claim or do and try to approach it philosophically. Okay. And what is this book about? more specifically not to so the, no no i want to give anything away <laughs> the knowledge machine is michael's attempt to give an account of uh what the scientific method is uh why it works how it works and yeah i think that's basically it uh how it works and why it's so successful at yielding knowledge about the world okay in contrast yeah. with something like astrology let's say okay. which yields no knowledge about the world <laughs> <Fair enough. laughs> and have you structured your interview in yeah. any way, or is there anything you can tell us so that you can, we can follow along more easily yes thank you for asking julia uh the interview will be divided into three sections so, uh, and it broadly follows the structure of the book. Uh, and so the, in the first section, we'll be talking about the great methodological debate. Uh, so the, the opposition between objectivity and subjectivity, people who think that science gets at the truth by virtue of its method. And it's because of that, that it yields truthful and objective information. And people on the other side who claim that science because it's done by scientists who are finite human beings and have cognitive biases and personal biases and the whole messiness of subjectivity cannot hope to give an objective account of the world and really just gives this very skewed account of, of reality. So that's going to really set up the theoretical problem that Michael is facing in the book. And then we're going to move on in the second section to his account, which can be summarized in what he calls the iron rule of explanation, which is this term that he's come up with, which is, and the, the iron rule of explanation is sort of the cornerstone of what science is and why science uh, is successful. And we're going to unpack that because it has a lot of moving parts that all work together to make the iron rule as successful as it is. And then finally, we're going to talk about the creation of scientists, the education of scientists, how, because that's a really important aspect of his book as well. 
He talks about what it takes to create a scientific community and the kinds of uh, the kinds of practices that society has taken up to foster and promote the growth of science and the scientific activity. Wonderful. And yeah, so it should be very interesting. It's a wonderful book. And uh, I'm looking forward to what to know to hear what you think about it, actually. And I'm looking forward to listen to the interview. Okay, then. So then, let's go and let's see what Michael Strevens has to say about the knowledge machine. Bye-bye. See you soon. Hello and welcome to Please Expand. Uh, Today I have Michael Strevens with me on the podcast to discuss his most recent book, The Knowledge Machine, How an Unreasonable Idea Created Modern Science. Michael, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. It's great to be here. So I'm going to sort of try and give a brief introduction of your book, and then I'm going to, you, you feel free to just add whatever you think I may have missed out. So very generally, your book is about the activity of scientists. In particular, you grapple with two opposing conceptions of scientific activity. On the one hand, those who claim that science is or can be a perfectly objective enterprise, where the truth can be got at. And on the other hand, those who claim that science may like to pretend that it is an entirely objective enterprise, but in reality, it's mired in cultural traditions and the subjectivity that follows from being limited by your sort of cultural worldview, which undermines any claim to objectivity. You think that there is an, I think I'm right in saying there's an element of truth in both these sides, and your account seems to do justice to both the essential subjectivity of science, but also its claims to making objective claims about the world. So uh, that's sort of uh, the brief summary that I sort of prepared. Is there anything you'd like to add to that? Well, that's a great, a great summary of the, uh, of, of the um, fundamental orientation of the book, uh, which is uh, defending the, the epistemological uh, power of science as something that is a, a knowledge-producing machine and something that we can really rely on to produce knowledge, while at the same time uh, doing justice to uh, all the elements of subjectivity that come into individual scientists' reasoning. And I want to explain in the book exactly how the, uh, the machine works to take ordinary human beings with uh, all of our uh, weaknesses and, and uh, biases and, and all of our energy and creativity and uh, uh, how, how science harnesses that kind of raw material to create something that I think has really only existed in the last few hundred years since the scientific revolution, something that's able to look into the structure of the universe and really tell us how it all works in a a way that the philosophers uh, and the scientists of ancient Greece, China, pretty much everywhere until, until this tiny little part of the world not so long ago, the, the ways in which those, those thinkers, however admirable uh, they may have been, um, somehow were not able to do. Yeah. So just to give a brief overview of how the interview will go, I'll just, I've sort of divided it into three sections. In the first section, we'll talk about these opposing methodological interpretations, sort of set the scene. And I think these disagreements will then prepare us for your contribution, which is the iron rule of explanation. And we'll talk about that and about the, all the other methodological innovations that you take to be so central to it. And then we'll finish off by talking about precisely what you were talking about just now, about how science manages to 
persuade all these people to adopt this crazy method and to keep the knowledge machine churning out uh, truth. Okay. Okay. So section one, let's begin objectivity versus subjectivity. So let's begin with the defense of science as an enterprise that yields knowledge. I guess this is what most people would be familiar. The average person off the street would probably think that science does yield objective truths. So could you say a bit, you talk about Karl Popper and Thomas Kuhn in your book. Could you say a bit about their projects and what they sort of brought to this, uh, this debate about the scientific method and how it works and what it produces. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I, when, when we're discussing the objectivity of science, I'm, I'm tempted to, to emphasize the similarities between Harper's and Kuhn's views of science, even though they're very different in many important ways. So both, I thought, think both of them, both of them would agree that in the long term, science makes progress and it makes progress by showing how um, prevailing ideas, big theoretical frameworks stumble and fall in the face of little observable facts. So there's something about science which is really good at dragging up these little facts, you know, not philosophical arguments or theological incoherences or anything like that, but, but, but uh, just little measurements, digging those up and, uh, setting up a contest between fact and theory uh, in which the fact ultimately wins. And it's the ability of science to do that, to, to find these little facts that is responsible for its progressive aspect, an aspect where you see something very different from the last few thousand years of contesting philosophical or religious schools, something where everybody in the enterprise really seems to be on board with the prevailing wisdom, which doesn't always turn out to be exactly right, but does seem to be pointing forward to the right ideas. So you have this finally, after thousands of years, agreement on uh, at the beginning of uh, the scientific revolution on, you know, what the structure of the solar system really is. It's the sun that's in the middle and the earth that goes around it. Agreement on, on at least the right way mathematically to think about gravity and Newton's theory of gravity which of course was then um, amended and improved by Einstein, but in a way that really vindicated the Newtonian framework in many ways. So that's a, that's a kind of a, a conception of, of the progressiveness and the objectivity of science that Popper and Kuhn share, despite their many differences. I think Kuhn was not happy with the idea that science was somehow getting closer to the truth, yet at the same time, he really thought that scientific uh, uh, science progressed and gave us ever better knowledge about the world in some sense of better. So those are, there's something they had in common. How they differed was in, if you like, the level at which this process of progressive refutation of old theories uh, worked. So for Popper, it's very much at the level of the individual scientists thought. Popper thought that the, the animating spirit of a really good scientist was to precisely to orchestrate this progress, to find these facts and show that they uh, uh, refuted existing theories. So for, for Papa, science is all about falsification and the spirit of the scientist is a falsifying spirit. The scientist doesn't want to prove their theories. They want to show that they're wrong so that new and better theories can come along after them. For Kuhn, same idea that old theories are going to be destroyed and the new theories uh, built on top of those smoking ruins. Uh, but for, at, for Kuhn, the, the level at which this happens is more a social level. The individual scientist in some sense, don't really know what they're doing, amazingly. They, they tend, Kuhn thinks, to actually believe in the prevailing theory, and they think what they're doing is just 
polishing it up. They're filling out the story that the theory tells. They're applying the, the mathematical models or the characteristic explanatory forms of that theory to more and more problems, just showing how perfect and how expansive and, and, and uh, how ultimately right in every way that theory is. And they're so excited about this project and they're so driven to make the theory work uh, uh, in every single arena and in every single way that they actually unwittingly discover the ways in which the theory doesn't work. Okay, they're animated by this sort of great fervor <laughs> to have the theory work everywhere. They try to apply it everywhere and, and turn up exactly the places where the theory falls down. And so they become, to put it in Popper's language, not Kuhn's, they become unwitting falsifiers of the prevailing theory. And this is what sparks the great scientific revolutions that Kuhn writes about. Right. Okay, that's great. That's a great introduction. So we've got falsification. And we've got these sort of individual, this description of how individual scientists function within the sort of the scientific enterprise. So this all sounds great. And you might think, yeah, this is how science works. I can imagine scientists working like this. But as it turns out, sociologists, figures like Bruno Latour, who have sort of studied, have followed scientists in the laboratory, have sort of discovered that it's not really how scientists work. And uh, you give a really, really nice you, you retell the, the anecdote of Bruno Latour's experience in this uh, laboratory in California in the 70s and sort of what he discovers. Uh, so w would you mind retelling that story? Because I think it's a really helpful illustration of what exactly we're talking about when we're saying that there is a lot of subjectivity in science. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. So Latour decided to go into this, into this lab, which was... Uh, uh, a uh, kind of brain science lab where people are trying to figure out the structure of various chemicals that are used for communication in the brain. Um, he decided to go in there uh, in an anthropological spirit. Instead of knowing what he was in for, he was going to go among these people, the scientists, and treat them as though they were, they were in effect, alien beings whose, whose folkways he had no, no way of fathoming. And just go in and talk to them, see what they're up to, and write down everything without any kind of um, background bias or prejudice or story about the way science really works to sort of aid his interpretation. Now, I think, I mean, by his own lights, he was never going to entirely succeed in eliminating all of his biases, although he did claim to know absolutely nothing about science when he went in there. Well, maybe. But he was a good observer. And um, one of the, uh, the kinds of things that he reported on in great detail. You know, he spent, he spent uh, a very long time in the lab as an ethnographer might spend years among, among some, some uh, culture. Uh, he spent, he spent uh, certainly um, over, the, over several years that he was doing the project, um, a very long time actually just hanging out with these scientists and seeing, what, seeing how they actually made their decisions, recording the details of their and what he, what he, what he found was, was that uh, there was uh, a lot that was, uh, I think, I think if, if you're just going to use one, one word, a lot that was negotiated. So rather than just looking at the evidence and, and saying, oh, well, this evidence tells us that such and such a theory is wrong, such and such a, a person is wrong, something that in effect, both, both Popper and, and Kuhn assume that science has this kind of um, a, a sort of logical framework although for Kuhn, one that changes from, from theory to theory, 
Latour found scientists sitting around saying, well, you know, it depends. Do we count this as a falsification? Do we count this as a problem for a theory? Well, it really depends on the kind of what, what you mean in this case by falsification, because there's always these, these kind of, I suppose you might call them parameters that can be um, adjusted a little bit. And there's not really a single right, right setting for these parameters. So to give you a more concrete example, you might, you, you, you want to know uh, whether this, uh, your hypothesis about the structure of some chemical substance is correct. And what you do, because it's, you can't just kind of dive into the molecular structure as though you had little little molecular glasses on. What you do is, one, or, or the kind of technique they were using there is to create a kind of a, um, what they're using is a technique called ga gas chromatography. But what you, you, what you get in effect is a, a sort of a little readout of bumps and blobs and so on. Just think of it as, as on a piece of paper. And you, um, you, you create one of those for the substance you're trying to analyze. And then you create it for a substance that has been specified, synthesized chemically to be the one that you think is, has the same structure as the one you're analyzing. So if your hypothesis is right, these two substances have the same structure. If you're wrong, they don't. And you do the gas chromatography for the two substances. You hold up the bits of paper and you say, do I get the same reading on both? Now you might think, well, that's straightforward. You just compare them and if they're identical, then that's great, and if they're different, they're not. But actually, it turns out that even when the substances are identical, there is, there's going to be some level of fudging or slippage. They're going to kind of look similar, but not exactly the same. So you have to make a kind of a, a judgment. Are these the same or not? And Latour realized that in this, and, and, and he was right, this is so common throughout science. It is a bit of a judgment call. You, um, you look at these things and, and some people might say they're the same. Some people might say they're different. When different scientists, even in the same lab, get together and talk about this, they actually are, are it's kind of like they're negotiating over a deal. Well, well, we could count these two as similar, but we would have to count these two as different and so on and so forth. Anyway, the, the upshot here is that there is a lot of uh, room for subjectivity in science. You know, not in this case, uh, not necessarily um, uh, a scientist, you know, well, they might be, I mean, they might be pushing an agenda or it might just be that there's kind of different people have somebody as a real stickler and they're not going to count these two bits of papers showing being the same unless they're really, really similar and somebody else is prepared to allow for a bit more slop. And there's no kind of hard and fast rule to tell you which way to go on a question like this. You know, both Popper and Kuhn write as though there really are these hard and fast rules. Right. Okay, I think they know in the back of their heads it's not that simple, but they're kind of uh, assuming that for the most case, this stuff is decided, look, the, the evidence either falsifies the theory or not. But in fact, there's a lot of back and forth, a lot of discussion, things flip around, something that's thought to be decisive later gets decided not to be decisive after all. And so in the short term, and even to some extent in the immediate term, in the, in, in the intermediate term, you see um, quite a lot of back and forth, quite a lot of disagreement on how to interpret the evidence. One group of scientists says, this is a clear refutation. Another says, not so fast. Uh, uh, and, and this is the condition of sort of science as it's being made. Um, simply a lot of disagreement about what the evidence actually says. Right. That's really good. Because I was, I, something that I was wondering is, why do Kuhn and Popper get it so wrong? Is it because they're not scientists? Because Kuhn, I mean, he wasn't a scientist per se, but he, he, he worked around scientists. He knew a lot of scientists. Yeah, he started in physics, but he didn't, he wasn't, he wasn't in a lab for years on end 
uh, uh, doing this kind of experimentation, dealing with these instruments and all of their problems and so on. So, so I don't, I, I don't think he was ignorant about the side of science, but I don't think he took it as seriously as Latour, other sociologists of science, historians, and, and philosophers have since taken it um, as a as a real a real obstacle yeah. to interpreting science as 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 a kind of a well, a machine for interpreting evidence, something that simply sort of tells us what to think in the light of the evidence. Yeah. Um, back in the 1940s or 50s, that story about science was would probably have been thought to be, you know, roughly on the right track. And these days we think, no, actually, roughly it's on the wrong track. Uh, the, the whatever's going on, it's not, it, it, it involves more than just, you know, a few departures from, from agreement on how to interpret the evidence. In fact, disagreements on how to interpret the evidence are, are the norm. Yeah. That's what's going on most of the time. If you just look at a, a, a little time slice, a little window um, um, uh, uh, of, of scientific inquiry. And this is, this is where uh, a concept you introduce, uh, plausibility rankings, sort of is really central. Every scientist will have their own plausibility rankings, how much to think, how much to assign error to an instrument or how lenient to be with how similar something looks. That's right. Uh, whether whether so, so scientists have opinions about other scientists' labs, um, they may think a certain scientist's results are a little bit suspicious. Needless to say, that that you know, so they 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 don't totally trust the scientists to, in effect, do the do the work in the right way. Even a quite prominent scientist, of course, that scientist, meanwhile, will have far greater trust in themselves for reasons that yeah. I don't need to explain. <laughs> so so these the notion of a plausibility ranking really just gathers together many, many different sources of subjectivity. Some of them, some, some of it might just be temperamental, as I, I was talking about that stickler when it came to comparing the two, the two chromatograph readings. That might just be a matter of temperament or, you know, some, something about <laughs> school days. And then some of it is, is, you know, frankly, kind of self-regarding. So the scientists, you're, you're going to think your own lab <laughs> is more reliable probably than other people will think your lab is. Some of it has to do with uh, kind of ideological traditions or, or just research traditions or just really a certain kind of patriotism that science, on the whole scientists tend to regard uh, their, their colleagues who came from the same labs or the same PhD programs with a bit more trust than those who come from a different place. Maybe they just feel like they understand what's going on better. So it's not necessarily that tribal. But these kinds of differences of opinion coming from all of many, many different sources are sufficient. And I think this is just the received wisdom these days in philosophy of science and, and other areas of science studies. They're sufficient to, to explain really why it is that, that the interpretation of the evidence in science is this perpetually contested thing, at least in, in science that's currently alive, that's being done. And just, oh, it's not another question, plausibility rankings, because it strikes me mm -hmm. that you might sort of divide them into various degrees of plausibility. Um, let's say you think an instrument isn't working particularly well. You could always go back, tweak it, and then redo the experiment. But you might have, you might have a background assumption about how the universe is constituted. And that might come into your plausibility. That might be part. But, and that's not something that you can actually resolve tomorrow by going back into that. That seems no. to be much more uh, resilient to retesting, for example. 
So inside that's right. Yeah. And these, these background assumptions can even be quite low level. I see it about whether a certain instrument is very prone to a certain kind of error. Right. <laughs> Uh, so it doesn't have to be a big theory about the way the universe is built, but but it might still be very difficult to just go back and decide that issue in the short term, especially when um, a lot of experimentation is actually very ex expensive and time consuming, and errors happen all the time, even with the best instruments. You know, these are very typically very sensitive things. Right. So it's not it's not easy to resolve these kinds of disagreements in the short term. Or scientists would. I mean, I think most scientists don't necessarily want to disagree about this stuff. Uh, it's just really, it's very fancy, complicated, difficult, expensive stuff to, to, to nail down, and it takes a long time. Okay, so it's really something that's baked into scientific practice. Um, it, it's part of scientific practice, which involves all these instruments, all these different ways of measuring. This is all baked into it, and just this degree of subjectivity is just part of the fabric of the scientific activity. I think that's exactly okay. right. It's just, it's really more or less unavoidable given the kinds of things that scientists are doing. Do you think scientists are aware of this? Yeah, I, I mean, I think they really okay. are. You wouldn't necessarily know it because scientists like to kind of tell the story of, of discovery typically in a way that tidies everything up. Yeah. Um, and, and makes it seem like a simple logical progression from experiment to, to theory. But at the same time, scientists are in the thick of these issues about interpreting the evidence. They're constantly arguing with one another about the stuff. So of course they know, know really if they were to be honest with themselves that the, just the question of how to understand the evidence is far more contentious than they might be making out in some of their more public facing comments. Right, okay, great. All right, so I think We've come to the end of the first section. We sort of looked at how science, someone might think science is an objective enterprise, but then we've also looked at some rather concerning mm -hmm. uh, discoveries, right? Mm -hmm. Of how scientific activity actually works. I think these are the kinds of things that if everyone knew about on a day-to-day -day basis, they might become concerned when they hear about scientific findings. Okay, and then, so in comes the iron rule of explanation. This is sort of, this is your contribution in, this, in the book. So could you introduce it? Uh, what is the iron rule of explanation? How does it help us? Sure. Well, I mean, it doesn't look on paper. It doesn't look like a very big deal. I should begin by saying, <laughs> but but it is the thing that I think takes is responsible more than anything else in modern science for for somehow converting all of the subjectivity into something that is much more like the objectivity that you see in science when you take the long view. Okay. Actually, you asked me earlier why why Popper and Kuhn were not more sensitive to the subjectivity. And maybe the reason above all is because they tended to take the long view. You know, Kuhn is a historian. Popper is looking at the, the hit parade of modern physics. Um, they, see, they see in the long term, and I think they see correctly, uh, that it really is the case that ultimately theories just uh, are objectively unsustainable in, in the light of enough of the right kind of evidence. And yet this is exactly the same kind of evidence that in the short term scientists are arguing about. So what's the, how can that be? That I might almost sound like I've contradicted myself. How can this evidence be so subjective in the short term and, and so decisive um, and agreed to be decisive in the longer mm -hmm. term? Uh, really the answer is, to that is very simple. It's that, that in the longer term, much more evidence has accumulated. So you can argue about little 
experiments here and there, the way this particular measurement was conducted, uh, the, the conditions over here, the, 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 the uh, vicissitudes of this particular instrument and so on. But over time, experiments get performed in different situations by different scientists uh, uh, under, uh, uh, using different instrumentation. And it's, it looks, uh, once you have enough of this kind of evidence, it begins to uh, kind of line up in a way where you'd have to be virtually a conspiracy theorist to doubt that uh, the, the prevailing theory, the old theory is really so great. So it's a matter of quantity. And the iron rule of explanation is, uh, which I'll, I have yet to actually <laughs> state, but I will in a moment. Its, its job is, is in fact, simply to motivate, uh, or I should say, it's, I, I see it's, the, the, its secret, if you like, is that it motivates to scientists to produce the right kind of evidence in the right kind of quantity to get the job done in the long term. So how does it do that? Well, here's what the, the, the iron, iron rule says. It's, it's um, interestingly, it's actually a, a, a rule about what can be published in scientists' uh, official channels of communication, scientific journals and so on. So it doesn't, in fact, uh, overtly regulate in any way what scientists actually do in their, uh, in their observational or experimental work and their theorizing and so on. It just restricts the way that they report what they do. But in so doing, um, as you'll see in a moment, it indirectly has a big effect on what they're doing the rest of the time because there's only certain things that they can report. Okay. Finally, let me actually say what the rule is. The rule says that we must assess theories exclusively by uh, looking at their, uh, their empirical success or failure. Um, you can put it in terms of um, prediction. Uh, do they make good predictions uh, or do they make bad predictions? Or you can put it in terms of uh, explanation. Some, some areas of science are really not so predictive, like evolutionary theory, for example. It's more about explaining what we've actually uh, seen, what, what, what we see in, in the uh, record of the evolution of life. And there we want a theory that uh, is good at explaining a lot of things rather than bad at explaining. But explaining is in a way just a kind of a reverse retrospective prediction in these cases, I think. So the difference is 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 not necessarily that great but anyway the now so far so far you may be thinking well what what have i said that's at all interesting or surprising um, science is all about explaining predicting the observable facts yes very true um, but what's important about the iron rule is it has a rather narrow conception of what counts as a as a as as a imp the kind of empirical fact that um science should be in the business of explaining and it and but even more important it rules out all other forms of argument so it rules out uh kind of uh philosophical arguments religious arguments even aesthetic arguments for or against theories it focuses scientists entirely in their reporting and uh, the way they write up their theories on just on this question of empirical success now many many scientists do take some of these other things into consideration when they're when they're trying to figure out what what's right, what's wrong, what are the promising avenues of research, and all of that stuff. Uh, you know, a good example of this, a modern example of this, is all the physicists who say that theoretical beauty is really important uh, to deciding what's viable or promising in 
in fundamental physics. But when they go to write it up, it has to be all about just, we get this prediction right. We, get, we can explain this stuff. And the iron rule is, is, is above all a kind of restriction to that kind of argument. It's a kind of enforces a kind of narrowness on scientists' reports that may not be present in their thinking, but which means by creating a kind of a, a bottleneck, if you like, means that if they're gonna if they're going to be successful scientists, they really have to throw all of their energy into this kind of uh, empirical argument. And when they have a disagreement, when when they come to uh, one of these points where we're saying, well, is this instrument so reliable? Is this source of source of error uh, something that's really worrying or something that we can safely dismiss? Are these background assumptions we're making really uh, as reliable as, 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 as we think? All of those arguments have to be resolved simply by further empirical testing. So in a way, this is science. This is science the way that it's, it's, it's presented in, for example, um, high schools here in the US when people talk about the scientific method. You just go back to the lab, um, back, back to, to make more observations. But it means that, uh, the rule means that, first of all, there's uh, no kind of I ideological fissures, which may ex in fact exist, or even just uh, <laughs> intense personal rivalries, which may actually exist in the social, the social world of science, uh, really can't be brought, brought to bear in any direct way in the published stuff. It's got to be, everyone has to at least pretend that they're taking one another seriously and, 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 and that they're, they're, they're uh, going to go back and argue just using measurements, just observable facts. So there's a kind of always this, this way forward that everyone can agree on, even if they don't agree on, on what kind of progress they're making by taking this way forward. And that way forward involves just producing more and more observable fact, more and more uh, detail that's designed to, to test exactly the kinds of theories, assumptions, or for that matter, instruments, methods that are being contested. And so the evidence piles up. There's a, if you're gonna, sometimes I compare it to a, it's a kind of a game almost, I mean, a very serious game. But a game where the rules say you've got every move has to be, as it were, an empirical move. It has to be another empirical test or, you know, or designing a theory to be tested or designing an instrument to perform these tests. It has to somehow contribute to this enterprise of empirical testing. So scientists who are going to play this game have to just produce more and more of a certain kind of data, often often data that's, and maybe we'll talk about this more in a moment, but data that's very expensive or time-consuming to produce, but it's the only way to play the game. So we've got to do it. And that's, that's how the Iron Rule creates, funnels all of scientists' energy into, into simply increasing the quantity of evidence to the point where these interpretive disputes finally are, I don't know if, not so much resolved often as simply crushed under the weight of the evidence. Everyone looks at the evidence, they may think about it differently, but they have to agree that, that the old ideas, the, 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 uh, the Ptolemaic world system, or for that matter, Newtonian gravity, is just no longer a viable theory. Yeah, I think that's, that's a really interesting point to make. And I think it echoes something that I found in David Woodson's book, The Invention of Science, where he really emphasizes mm -hmm. the importance that you finally have a community of people who are doing science. And it seems like what you're saying requires that you have people who are agreeing to play by the same rules with each other. They're willing to communicate in the same way. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Okay. 
Um, so the iron rule tells us how we can play the game of science. Okay. And you've, you've already sort of hinted at an answer to this question, which is the long-term view. But we still have sort of the issue of that, that pesky subjectivity and plausibility rankings, um, mm-hmm. which sort of seems to oh, almost infect sort of the, uh, the, the, uh, the small-scale experiments that we see. And, and you've got another great term, Baconian convergence here, which is, as you said, if you get enough evidence together, it will eventually crush the uh, the bad evidence. Or good science will drive out bad science. Uh, another way of maybe putting that term. So I just want to ask a sort of a conceptual question about what, what the implication of this is. Because often in scientific, in debates about scientific method, it's always sort of subjectivity, objectivity. And what you seem to be saying is that there is something about what it is for something to be objective is that it has these pockets of subjectivity in it. And when you get enough subjectivity together, it eventually becomes something objective. That it's not subjective and objective, it's the accumulation of the subjective, with obviously objective stuff as well, because you're still doing empirical tests, but it seems to be that sort of accumulation that gives us the objective, the, the, the like with a big O, the one that we want. Um, what do you think about that? Yeah, well, almost when you put it that way, it almost sounds like alchemy. But I think if you if you look up a little bit more closely, you can see that the process is 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 not so strange. So, um, where does the subjectivity come from? Uh, uh, let me I'll, let me use another one of the examples I use in the book. So this is this is, has to do with uh, the um, experimental work or, or empirical work. Um, that was done to to investigate whether Einstein's new general theory of relativity, a new theory of gravity, was better than Newton's old theory of gravity. So some of the some of the early scientists are excited about this. Like Arthur Eddington, really thought there was something beautiful and and explanatorily very elegant about Newton's theory, but um, uh, sorry, Einstein's theory. But in accordance with the Iron Rule, Eddington knew if he was going to if he was going to officially if he was going to argue for this theory then he would have to front up with some facts so one of the things you can do to test the theory is to see how strongly um, light rays are bent by gravity and uh, the way to do this uh, really the only practical way which is still pretty impractical is to (laughs) is to uh, look at the the effect of the sun on very nearby stars, that is stars that appear to be right next to the sun's disk, um, which you have to do during a total eclipse because otherwise the sun is so bright it just, of course, drowns out the stars. So Eddington and a a few uh, other scientists sailed off to photograph the positions of these stars around the sun during an eclipse. Anyway, to to fast forward a little bit to the the, uh, denouement, they got a lot of good data, but also a lot of confusing data. And in particular, they had two telescopes from uh, uh, each with their own cameras from one of the sites. They were doing this operation in Brazil. And um, they seemed to, they showed, they came up with contrary results. Um, one of them was looked good for Einstein. The other one looked good for Newton. But the one that looked for, good for Newton was also those photographs were a little bit blurred, not so blurred that you couldn't get get measurements out of them and, and see that they were, as I say, good for Newton. But something had gone wrong with the experiment uh, a little bit. Questioned, had it gone so wrong that the whole 
those those results should simply be dismissed. You know, something this something went wrong here. We just shouldn't trust this data. Or was it, you know, as often happens in science, data that's kind of not perfect but good enough to to at least start drawing some conclusions. Now, what Eddington and his team actually did is they just rejected it out of hand. But some of the other scientists working um, in the same field, actually interested in performing the same kinds of measurements, thought that that was too quick. That there were, uh, uh, although it, it was certainly possible that there had been the kind of systematic error with this data that, that made it useless, it was also possible that there was good information here. Now, it's not so easy to sail off and find a, a total eclipse and perform these experiments. It requires the right kind of eclipse. It requires months and months of preparation requires good luck on the day, uh, you know, clear skies and so on. So it wasn't, this, this isn't something you can do over and over again um, in a hurry. So there was just for a while, there was this kind of disagreement on exactly how to treat these results. Did they, as it were, cloud, cloud Eddington's results or was this a clear victory for relativity? It wasn't, it wasn't obvious. Well, how did that, how did that question eventually get resolved. One of, the, one of the prominent doubters of Eddington's experiment, as it, who, as I say, was in the same business, actually ultimately obtained uh, results from a different eclipse. This is about three years later that really, really seemed to, um, that did not in any way favor Newton. So that really gave the right kind of Einsteinian bending. And that's a good example of the data piling up in a way that resolves certain kinds of doubts on which scientists come down on different sides. So with that original telescope, you had Eddington, uh, who was part of the team that actually produced the data. Uh, 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 and also Eddington himself was very uh, enthusiastic about Einstein's theory, sort of inclined to dismiss those results entirely and, and thereby producing a pretty uh, strong result in favor of Einstein. Whereas another scientist motivated in various ways is saying not so fast. And, you know, quite, perhaps quite reasonably. But then another experiment comes along. It's done in a different conditions. The results are a little bit different, a little bit clearer, actually. And, and the, the doubter says, OK, I think that was a good one. <laughs> I'm on board with Einstein now. And you can see other, other scientists looking on may well have reacted the same way. Further experiments have been done since then, really piling up the data. And now there's not a lot of doubt. And it's really because these individual questions on which People really never, never agreed on an answer. What, what, should, what should be done with those results from the Brazilian telescope? It's still not the case that people agree on that question, but it's just not important anymore because there's so much other data that has come along since. So these, this subjectivity expresses itself not in people just kind of yelling at one another in, in a way that's unresolvable, but in specific disagreements about what happened in specific situations. And the way that more and more data can resolve those disagreements is sometimes um, by showing what really happened, but actually much more often simply by rendering those disagreements moot. You know, it doesn't really matter what we think about the Brazilian telescope anymore because we have all this other data. And, and so the, the kinds of entirely reasonable questions that different scientists have um, uh, about different, different bits of data eventually, eventually get addressed to the point where pretty much everyone is satisfied, not satisfied in the same way or even satisfied by the same data. They weigh different questions differently, but and with enough data, everyone is happy. And that's essentially yeah. the, the, the way the convergence process tends to work. You know, it's not log logically guaranteed that it will turn out that way, but, but looking at the history of science over and over, it does. So what's really incredible is that science harnesses all these 
all this noise almost ambition uh, rivalries uh, and it, it puts mm. them in the dire- in its in the direction of its own fulfillment and mm-hmm. it's only because you have someone because because one concern might be right one concern might be I don't know, you've got a whole generation of young physicists who read Arthur Eddington's paper, and he's a fairly influential mm-hmm. physicist, and you might be concerned that, well, because of this sort of non, this non-objective, this, this uh, non-objective decision to sort of set aside these images, that he's going to influence a whole generation of physicists and skew sort of the, uh, the project of mm-hmm. science in this direction without any proper evidence mm-hmm. but that, that that's to sort of not take into account something fundamental about human nature which is that that's not how it works you're going to have people who are going to push back and want to disagree and uh, they have their own opinions and their own beliefs and their own approaches for how they want to resolve the problem yeah that's exactly right and and also on top of that if you want to be a uh, if you want to succeed as a scientist as a scientist, it's not enough just to pick 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 the right side and kind of join the team. Um, you need to you need to play that game, which means you need to produce your own data. So you need to either um, I mean, if this is the issue you really want to work on, either resolve those you know set out to resolve those disagreements in a way that will defend Eddington, or set out to undermine him. And in doing that, you know, regardless of your your actual goals. <laughs> You'll you'll turn up more data and and um, therefore contribute to this right. process of conversion. So there's something about just the very nature of the the game where it, it can't get stuck at a point where people just agree to disagree. Because uh, if they were to do that, they would be no longer scientists. They'd be, they'd be philosophers. Yeah, they'd be philosophers. They'd be so journalists. So even if you had a whole bunch but... of students who agreed with Eddington, nevertheless, they mm. would still come up against the evidence. Uh, and they would discover things for themselves, even if they just blindly followed him. Exactly. And of course, it's not, again, there's no guarantees here. Sometimes it does happen that a certain dogma just gets stuck for a while and nobody questions it for a while, or or it's even possible that a certain group of scientists are institutionally so powerful that they protect it for a Mm -hmm. while. But um, typically, uh, you know, science does, it's a big, diverse, sprawling, sprawling enterprise and an enterprise where you can only get ahead by 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 um by doing more empirical testing and so those kinds of temporary roadblocks uh on the whole it seems get swept away again i'll say there's there's no guarantees here and it's possible to imagine a kind of dystopian future for science where one group just gets its fingers in so so deeply Mm. that that people get permanently stuck that's that's possible but given the way that science is set up, that on the whole yeah. doesn't happen. So it seems that science also requires a certain, maybe here we can echo Karl Popper's concerns. It requires a certain free society where people are, are able to actually express opposing views. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a kind of a, a conception of the, of the enterprise that has a bit of, well, you know, I, I emphasize the competitive side yeah. of it. Uh, but of course... Uh, it has to be a competition where people are free to compete. So on the one hand, the freedom opens the doors uh, and then the com- competitive spirit kind of pushes people to go through the doors. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Important. Okay then, so I'd like to talk now about these uh, four methodological innovations that are essential to the functioning of the Iron Rule. Um, and the first one is a notion of explanatory power that all scientists can agree on. And... Mm-hmm. I think you make the 
rather interesting observation that the kind of explanations that science favors are rather shallow ones. So they're not, Mm -hmm. they're not trying to explain everything. They're just trying to explain why these two things occur, why A causes B without making any further assumptions about what A is or what B is or what the thing is that is causing them. And mm-hmm. I think this, this shallow explanatory power is, is the kind of thing that maybe sometimes frustrates philosophers with science because you think, how can you be satisfied with this explanation? You're not asking all these other huge questions about the being of what you're discussing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so could you say a bit about sort of how the historical sort of origin of people being content with this shallow explanation? You know, we're going from Aristotle, who explained everything in, in this beautiful uh, tapestry of interconnecting connections to people being satisfied with very simple explanations, but explanations which have sort of profound significance, nevertheless. Yeah, so the so explanations that are the the shallow explanation is what I was describing earlier when I said it's really just a kind of like a, a sort of a retrospective prediction. Um, so it doesn't it doesn't to count as a good explanation it doesn't have to go down deeply into the essential nature of things or anything like that. You just have to have a set of causal principles like Newton's laws of motion and his um, gravitational force law and derive the things you want to explain from that. Mm-hmm. And the person I think who is above all responsible for making that okay in science, making that enough, is Newton himself. So he, he, alter, at least when he looked back over his work later, he he the way he explained what he was doing, he said, "Look, it's enough to explain all of the things I've set out to explain the motions of the planets, the tides, and so on. It's enough simply to derive them from these principles I've laid out." The laws of motion and the and the gravitational force law, and um, and a little just a little bit more. That's that's good enough. Now, how did he persuade people that that was good enough? I think basically by uh, being incredibly successful. So he sort of set up. He he said, "Here's my method. Here's what I did. Here's what I cared about." Um, uh, and and uh, uh, the scientists who followed him looked at that and said, "Wow, okay, let's try doing it that way." And in fact, it worked out very well. We know from Newton's private papers that he himself personally actually went a lot deeper than his official theories did. He was interested in deep explanation, but for whatever reason, uh, he kind of uh, uh, conceived of his project when he wrote the Principia, when he laid out his theory of gravitation, as one that would just be concerned with the shallow side of things. It's, I think it's. I don't think we'll ever know exactly what was going on in his head when he did it that way, but it's easier to see what's going on in subsequent heads when they say, okay, well, that worked out really well. Let's do it that way, which is, I think, really the beginning of a, a sort of understanding that it's that, that ultimately constitutes the iron rule, that it's what we should do is just try to write down equations or print, they don't have to be mathematical, but, but theories, hypotheses that, that get the observable facts right. And the big thing about science is going to be to just do that and uh, to at least pretend to play this game where we're doing that as the only thing we'll take seriously as a, a way of arguing for and against theories. 
So there's a sort of, I turned, talked earlier about a kind of a narrowing here. Also, there's a kind of a shallowing um, um, uh, uh, of, of the official scientific discourse, the discourse that's in the journals, that on the face of it actually looks rather, uh, as, as you said, um, from a philosophical point of view, it seems rather impoverished. Yet it's also what creates that rather, well, uh, restricted channel that focuses so much of scientists' energy, well, all of it in effect, on, on empirical testing and therefore on what it ultimately turns out to take to, uh, to, to achieve what I call Baconian convergence, to build up, build up a level of consensus in the light of the data about, about whether the prevailing, prevailing, big prevailing ideas are right or wrong. Yeah, that's just, um, I found that very interesting because, because you've touched on another important distinction, another important innovation, which is the distinction between public scientific argument and private scientific reasoning, which, again, I think it captures the humanity of the scientists we're involved in. It's not just these robots that are engaged in empirical testing, but people who have private beliefs. But the important thing for you is that they sort of set them aside and they focus on just what the empirical testing gives them. Just with this distinction in mind between scientific argument and non-scientific reasoning, I wanted to talk a bit about uh, your chapter on, on beauty, on the role of aesthetic reasoning in, in science. Because I thought that was, mm, I wouldn't say provocative, but it was, it was thought-provoking. Provocative because I've always been, always, I mean, I'm, I would have said that I would have thought that it really shouldn't play a role in science. And you want to actually, so I actually want to figure out more what exactly you think about what you think the role of beauty or aesthetic considerations should play in the scientific activity. I understand that you, you, you don't think it should be part of scientific argument. Okay, fine. That's just empirical side. But you say it should be, it can be part of scientific deliberation, I believe is the term you use. And I wonder if you could just flesh that out a bit. How exactly should ideas of mathematical elegance, for example, influence how scientists do science? Okay, the, uh, the iron rule says no aesthetic arguments in print, as it were, or you know, in, in, the, in the journals. So someone like Eddington, who is really influenced by the explanatory mathematical elegance of Einstein's theory of relativity, couldn't go out and argue for it, try to persuade his fellow scientists, at least not officially, um, by laying out this elegance, even though it's not, it's something that certainly can be laid out. It's not ineffable or anything like that. This is certain very particular things you can point to where, where, where that, that Einstein's theory makes sense of that just, just aren't really explained in, a, in, a, in the same way, by, in an elegant way, by Newton's theory. So he could have, in, 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 in a world without the iron rule, Eddington could have done that. And I would guess that's probably what he would have done. <laughs> okay. So what's going on here? On the one hand, he, a scientist, is being influenced by, by these, by considerations of elegance, but he's being pushed but precisely by his admiration for Einstein's theory 
to um, uh, to argue for that theory empirically, because that's the only way to to kind of uh, uh, advance views in print in the journals. So this is where this very important distinction comes in between, on the one hand, what's going on in the scientist's own head, in Eddington's head, the appreciation for, for mathematical elegance, and on the other hand, what goes on in print. Eddington has to lay out the table of data from these this eclipse expedition and argue that Einstein's theory gets the right value for the bending angle of light. That's the basic situation. So it's not ex this leaves open the question of whether anyone should really pay attention to mathematical beauty. I mean, maybe you uh, th that's the way the iron rule works, and you can see how it, how it's working to do what I've said it does to to just build up the big pile of relevant evidence. But but should should scientists pay attention to mathematical elegance even where in the in the arena where they're allowed to, that is in their own heads, or actually for that matter, anywhere unofficial. So scientists write popular books about the beauty of physics as well. There's a whole pile of those you can point to. Um, but should they? Well, I don't, you know, it's not really a part of my project to exactly to argue yes or no, but it's such an interesting question, I can't resist it. What I see when I, I go, th go, when I, uh, I confront this question in the knowledge machine is that is that sometimes in some areas a concern for the right kind of beauty has been very fruitful and in other areas a concern for the wrong kind of beauty has actually been quite an impediment to theoretical advances so that may sound like that may sound not very helpful except I think that for example the fundamental physicists who now tout beauty as a really um, important consideration privately, of course, just each in their own head in, in evaluating theories. I think they see, they can look back and see a history of a certain kind of beauty being important in their own area. And it's quite reasonable for them to think that, that, that uh, aesthetic considerations are, uh, uh, are actually quite a, a good guide to where to go. You know, no, certainly not an infallible guide and, you know, well, the problem of induction, just because it's worked in the past, doesn't mean it will work in the future. But still, it's quite reasonable, I think, to believe that. That's, and so that, at least, I will, I will maintain. Well, at the same time, acknowledging that that's just not true in every area of science or for every kind of beauty that, that thinkers have found striking in the past. But so I do think, therefore, ultimately, I think a, a, a sort of a, you might say, a even an empirically informed conception uh, of of um, of the the right kind of beauty to attend to is, is is a really valuable thing for some scientists. Or let me, or to be slightly more cautious, it appears to be really valuable. We have good reason to think that yeah. it's, it's valuable. So that makes me, in a qualified way, pro beauty. So yeah. So obviously, the kind of stuff we're talking about is. Is generally mathematical elegance, right? It's what usually theoretical mm -hmm. physicists find to be mm -hmm. a beauty on a mathematical standard. Mm -hmm. Do you think, are we making some assumptions about how the universe is? Are we saying that there is something mathematical, essentially mathematical? Is, is there something about mathematics that is so good at revealing the world to us that it's reasonable to pay attention to mathematical symmetry, elegance, simplicity, all these sort of aesthetic terms that mathematicians and theoretical physicists appreciate. I think, I think this kind of reasoning in some sense, yes, has, has, has that 
assumption behind it that we live in you know an elegant universe but as i say it's not it's not as if that's uh, uh, uh hanging in an empirical void as an assumption insofar as looking back at the history of physics and ideas that have worked well at least in a certain kind of physics we see that on the whole they've turned out to pretty be pretty elegant you could say well we have at least some evidence that we do live in an elegant universe you know it'd be foolish to ignore that information yeah. Yeah, i'm sure it's coming from all sorts of uh sources that are themselves um uh, uh if we just examine them in isolation are, are, are not obviously reliable kind of yearning for harmony beauty and so on but but one that might you might say has turned out to be at least partially vindicated mm. this is a this is um this uh, sort of concern is also echoed in uh sabina hossenfelder's book lost in math right mm. and her concern yeah. there is that aesthetic considerations are unduly influencing research programs. The assignment of funds, I think her particular concern is towards the building of an ever larger Hadron Collider. Mm -hmm. What do you make of that? What do you make of the role of aesthetic deliberation in, in, in research, in, in, in decisions about which directions research should go? Because that's not... That's something that seems to almost straddle the domain that these two domains that we're talking about between official scientific argument and private reasoning, right? No, right. So a, a lot, there's what the show, a lot can hinge on it uh, on this aesthetic reasoning. Once we're we're talking about billion dollar projects, uh, so I think you know I, the way I interpret Hassenfelder is as a, actually a, a useful cautionary voice. She says, "Don't." Just because beauty has worked so far, don't assume that it's going to continue to work. And I think there she's not just she's not just articulating a, a principal point. She's saying we're already starting to get evidence in the failure of theories like supersymmetry. Uh, we're starting to get evidence that the concern for elegance is not working out right now with the problems that we have right now. So in a way, she's in this in the tradition of sort of paying it exactly the tradition I'm, I'm endorsing of paying careful attention to where aesthetic thinking is working and where it isn't. So I, I think that's, that's a good thing. And, uh, you know, in the end, I'm not really in a better, certainly in no better position than anyone else to say whether we should sure. um, spend, spend all of this money. Uh, these, are, these are indeed subjective decisions. And when the subjective decisions are guiding the way that individual scientists are using their research money and their labs. That's one thing. But when, when you're talking about these projects where everyone, in effect, has to coordinate on a single thing, then, then it's things start to look risky again. There's not this kind of bet hedging you typically get in science, where many different approaches are being taken at once. It's just one big thing, and yet we're not going to make progress. It's being said unless we have something that big. Um, I don't have I don't have any anything um, original to say about that except uh, what we should yeah be a little bit cautious. Right. Okay, great. Okay, then so let's just go to the uh, the final section where we just talk about how mm. how science creates scientists, um, how mm. how we manage to persuade people to to stare at tiny samples of brain for twenty years. <laughs> so as we've already touched on many times, you make the point that there is a sort of a and something irrational about science, that it demands of you to set aside a whole host of considerations 
philosophical, theological, aesthetic, that you might not only cherish, but deem important in life. And it asks you to just focus on the, what, you can, what you can observe. And you, you dedicate um, the final part of your book on this topic, on the training of the scientists, on, on making the scientific mind. So could you say a bit about, a bit, bit about that, how, what the sort of the, the strategies are for getting people to, to think this way? Yeah, sure. Uh, so there's really two, there's two levels of strategy. One is, one is simply the iron rule itself, which as I've, I've said, sort of sets out a game. And um, to say, use the example of Eddington again, Eddington is privately convinced by, by the mathematical elegance of relativity, but if he's going to play the game, he has to sail off to Brazil or the coast of Africa to photograph the eclipse, months long expedition with no guarantee of success. There's a, a, a way in which the iron rule takes uh, uh, any kind of scientist and by saying to them that reasons you care most about are just not going to be considered legitimate in the science game, forces them to be empiricists. And that's really, when I talk about irrationality, it's above all that that I have in mind. The rule is saying, this stuff might be important, but we're going to forget about it. Mm. That's, there's something logically wrong about that, ignoring powerful, relevant, informative considerations, uh, like, like the aesthetic character of theories and fundamental physics. Um, uh, but also something that's very practically right about it. It's because Eddington got on the boat that we started getting the data and because scientists after him were willing to do similar kinds of very demanding, expensive experiments that we, we have the data. So the, the rule is really working well there. But I also talk, as you say in those final chapters, about the way the science, uh, the education of scientists proceeds. Um, in many cases, I think, emphasizing the iron rule to the point where, where the scientists themselves become as narrow as the rule. I think it would be a shame if, uh, if the education system entirely succeeded <laughs> in that goal. I think it's actually, there's a wonderful way in which the whole institution of science is able to have it both ways in a very fruitful way. Someone, someone like Eddington, on the one hand, is able to bring in aesthetic considerations as far as they're relevant and important and helpful in his private thinking to decide what, what he really cares about. But then at the same time, is, is, is because of the prohibition on aesthetic reasoning and the iron rule is forced to go and do the experiments. That, that, that way we get a lot of the benefit of aesthetic thinking, but also this, this 100% focus on the empirical when it comes to actual scientific persuasion that has been so fruitful in the past. So we don't really want we want to implement the iron rule in the pages of the journals, but we don't want to implement it in the heads of scientists, I think. And one of the things I write about near the end of the book is, is in, effect, in effect, a kind of a cautionary note about this. Don't let, don't, maybe in many cases it doesn't matter too much, but don't let scientists become, become too narrow. At the same time, don't, uh, don't lessen in any way their allegiance to the iron rule. Okay, they've got to, in some sense, the, the ideal of scientific argument as empirical reasoning has to be sustained because that's what the iron rule is about. Whereas at the same time, scientists kind of let all this other stuff in through the, through the back doors of the mind to inform them 
wherever appropriate. It's a, it's a nice balance, I think, that science has struck for the last few hundred years. Uh, and I hope we can keep yeah. it. And your book ends on a rather optimistic note that uh, even though science or maybe technology better is sort of the cause of a lot of our problems nowadays, like maybe climate change, you know, the industrial revolution, whatnot. It's also currently our greatest hope for solving these problems. And so I was struck by this, this idea of science as both the cause of problems and the solution of problems. It's, uh, you know, perpetuating itself in this respect in some regard. Do you think this is partially because of this, you know, this uh, schizophrenic way of being that on the one hand, the scientific domain is sort of so detached from everything else that's non-empirical, but on the other hand, it plays such a central role in in the whole sphere of life that it will have these unintended consequences or... I don't know. I mean, you might say the same thing you just said about science, about economic development in yeah. general. It creates a lot of problems and it, it, it makes our lives better in many ways, while at the same time creating problems, but also offering the hope of solving those problems. That's partly thanks to, to technological development, which is partially thanks in, terms to, in turn to scientific development. I don't know that there's anything special about science here. It's rather more something that's maybe special about human beings in general. Uh, we have a lot of a lot of different conflicting desires, short-term and long-term desires, and we often have trouble uh, sorting out what really uh, is ultimately the best for us um, at any one time. We know we know and have known for a while about climate change. Um, but even knowing about it and taking it very seriously, we're still, you know, jumping on planes to fly to the other side of the world to, well, discuss uh, what to do about climate change. And, you know, that's not, I'm not saying that's not justifiable, but I think it's, you can, at least I can feel in my, in my own mind or heart that there's a, there's a little bit of conflict there about, on the one hand, wanting to take advantage of everything I can do right now. And on the other hand, mm some sort of foresight of, of where this is all heading. That's, that's a kind of a pretty standard feature of our <laughs> human, human emotional and intellectual machinery. And probably if we were going to put the blame on, 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 on anything that's able to pull in two directions at once, it would be that, not, not yeah. science. Yeah, wonderful. Okay. Well, uh, Michael, I just want to mm -hmm. ask you one last question. Uh, what are you currently mm -hmm. working on? Are, are you still working on questions about science and the scientific method? Well, I'm still I'm still very interested in questions about how science as a, a social institution works in many ways. I mean, there are aspects of it that I don't discuss at all in the in the book, but which are still very important to do with uh, the norms by which science, the, just the social rules by which scientists get credit for their discoveries. There's questions right now, really interesting questions about whether the the, the, whether the structure of the science game, all told, actually is um, is pushing scientists to publish prematurely, mm -hmm. uh, a different set of norms about information sharing, um, about whether scientists should should share their unpublished data methods and so on freely. These questions have all all actually become even more prominent, perhaps uh, than ever because of what people sometimes refer to as the replicability crisis, a kind of a, a perception that, that a lot of scientific research is being done more to win the game than to advance knowledge. 
So I spend all this time in the book talking about how well the game works, the virtues of the game, how it how it pushes scientists to do something that 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 that, that advances advances knowledge in ways that it just was not advanced by the otherwise totally wonderful philosophy <laughs> that um, my ancient colleagues were doing back in the day. Um, so the virtues of the game, but you know, well, is is it's a real question is whether the gamification of science also is 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 gone too far where the people who've become really good at exploiting or simply playing by the exact rules that have been laid out are kind of starting to ruin science or at least make it much less effective than it could be so the question of whether we need to amend the rules uh, in some way without losing what we currently have i think is a really big important one that i'm thinking about are right you now. tempted to think that maybe this is just how it looks because we have this sort of short-term view. And if we look back at it in sort of 50 years time, everything will just even out. Well, I do think it's really important to appreciate everything we've gotten out of the game. So uh, it's not, if you like, the gamification of science, to use a very newfangled word, has been around since the beginning. It's not a new and unwanted development. Uh, it's not that we need to turn back to just just having scientists as as independent thinkers who are unconstrained by by anything like the iron rule i think that would that would take us back to the the wild freewheeling but also also ultimately non-progressive days of of natural philosophy so we need, really need to appreciate what's good about the game if we're going to start tinkering with the rules that i think is the that that is probably the most important insight i have to offer right now to to the Right. Well, Michael, thank you very much for discussing your book with me and for illuminating so many aspects of it. And uh, well, it was really great to talk. Wonderful. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. And uh, now Julie and I are going to discuss some of the points from my interview with uh, Michael Stravens on his book, The Knowledge Machine. So Julia, welcome back to the studio as it were. <laughs> so uh, do you want to start us off with some thoughts about the interview? Yeah. Um, so first of all, thank you very much once again for a very thought provoking interview. If I were to choose one starting point, I would probably ask you to elaborate on one of the questions you asked Michael, which was the one regarding subjectivity and objectivity. In particular, at a certain point, you, uh, you were basically pressing him to say a little bit more on whether he thinks that a sufficient amount of subjectivity in a way would lead us to objectivity. And he responded something like, well, puts like this it sounds like magic i just was wondering whether there was something else to your question yeah i think to be fair i didn't really phrase it very well i was trying to get at something that i thought that michael's book was doing which i found interesting but maybe i also misinterpreted it just take a step back the context for that question was that whenever you at least the way michael presents it in his book when people have this debate about science and whether science is doing what science thinks it's doing it's always a sort of an objectivity versus subjectivity debate 
So either people claim science isn't doing what it claims what it, that it's doing because it's mired in subjectivity. So, you know, uh, cognitive biases, cultural background, so on and so forth. Or science does do what it claims to do because it manages to get at ob objectivity. And that's by doing experiments and getting evidence. And these things are clean, objective things that are polished, that have, any, that have no subjectivity in them. It's just polished objectivity. And what I, and that's, you know, classic opposition in philosophy in many respects. What I saw Michael's book as doing was offering an account where subjectivity and objectivity are part of the same story. It's not one or the other, but they together, they mutually reinforce each other. And it's that mutual activity that, that gives us science. Specifically when, so when that mutual activity is specifically applied to the scientific approach, it's what gives us science. So it was, what was it? I think it was a Baconian convergence. So this idea that if you have enough experiments about something that the opposing views will just be, and if these experiments show the same result, opposing views will be crushed under the weight of this, of the view that these experiments are all proposing. And the idea, Michael's point is that experiments are not just these uh, displays of objectivity, but they're, they're mired with all these plausibility rankings, amongst other things. So, you know, what scientist A takes to be a significant result, scientist B may not. And we spoke a lot about plausibility rankings in the interview. But the point is that every result, every paper that publishes a result comes with certain judgments, subjective judgments, which can't refer to any rules, objective rules. And so there's this intermingling of subjectivity and objectivity in every paper. But at the same time, science eventually at different points reaches, let's say, a consensus on something. And so that thing is taken to be true and other things are taken to be false. And so the picture that I saw Michael as painting was that if you get enough of these uh, pockets of subjective objective papers and you sort of add them all up together, they eventually form this objective thing. It, it gives you the kind of objectivity that science claims to give you. I suppose is... Um an objectivity understood as convergence. Yeah, through um, multiple subjectivities that are also sort of engaged with objectivity. It's not, yeah, exactly. I, I like this reading. Um, I, I just wonder whether someone, not sure if Michael or someone who's an advocate of an, an old fashioned account of objectivity would just simply rebut by saying, well, couldn't we instead say that science and convergence, science reaches convergence and objectivity despite these pockets of subjectivity, as you call them, rather than thanks to them in a way? Hmm. I think if you're doing that, you're ignoring and not making explicit to yourself the debt 
that is owed to subjectivity, that is owed to subjectivity when you reach objectivity. Because one of the, you know, the subtitle of Michael's book is something like how irrationality or how an irrational idea created modern science, something like that. And the irrational idea is that we're going to ignore everything and just focus on doing empirical tests. But at the same time, uh, there are all these human characteristics that are integral to people participating in this activity. So it's the harnessing of pride, of ambition, of sometimes maybe the desire for truth that gets people to do experiments. And all these, all these motivations are, and all the, plausibil all the plausibility rankings as well, are all part of these uh, small accumulations of, uh, of knowledge, of evidence. Nice. So I think, yeah, because they play such an integral role in the, in the accretion of knowledge, it seems that you're doing something wrong when you get to the end of that goal that you then just sort of take out all that, that whole aspect of it, just focus on it. And I think instead you should just, it should make you realize that you can't have an account of objectivity without subjectivity. Yeah, I think, and I think that's what I, that's what's really interesting about his book. Yeah, and something else actually that this made me think of is uh, perhaps an important way. I don't know if it's in the book. Uh, it didn't come up in the interview. An important way in which subjectivity may contribute to progress is that it is because of very idiosyncratic and personal desires and maybe also prudential reasons and will to uh, dominate the competition of scientists and uh, whatnot, that there mm. are individuals that uh, desires and will to dominate uh, the competition or shine in comparison with other scientists at all, and all that individuals end up challenging certain dogmas that may otherwise have gone unchallenged and perhaps that contributes in turn to the fall of a certain paradigm in this sense subjectivity is essential to um, the evolution of and the su su succession of, of paradigms yeah definitely I think that's a really important aspect of what he wants to say. Maybe not in those words, but I think that bears out from his book. Nice. Okay, so another point I wanted to discuss a little bit more is that um, he says the disagreement on what a piece of evidence proves is part and parcel of um, the scientific practice. And... I think actually this is a, another place in which the thought that there are this pocket of subjectivity enters the picture. Because, for example, the, in philosophy and epistemology, there are some evidentialist um, theories of justification on which a belief oh. that a mental state is justified only if the believer has a sufficient amount of evidence for it. And one of the main critiques against this line of thought is that 
evidence alone cannot determine what is sufficient evidence. Mm -hmm. So you need an external criterion, a judgment, a, a thought, a belief, something that sets the threshold of what counts as sufficient evidence. And that cannot be set by evidence itself. And, and this objection is meant to prove that we can't say that the only relevant pieces of support are evidence. And here, similarly, I thought, well, exactly, there, there can't be a purely evidentialist theory of what science is, because every experiment needs not only support, but also someone who determines that that amount of support or evidence is sufficient to prove a certain theory. And that's one step forward that uh, any claim in science can't be proved only by an experiment, but also by the thought that a certain amount of experiments will be sufficient. Which of course opens up the question once again, is that arbitrary? You know, so when he talks about their like who who, um, who sets this threshold, and how can we be sure that it's the right one? So also when he talks about disagreement, I suppose not only on how much evidence is needed, but also on what kind of evidence is needed, or the quality of certain experiments, or the details, or whatnot. Um, the point is, does that threaten? the achievement of objectivity. Must objectivity be impartial as well? I think you're absolutely right that there is this element of arbitrariness in both on the micro scale of what a scientist or a group of scientists working on something together decide to count as evidence or as sufficient evidence and also on, on the macro scale uh, regarding what the scientific community decides or when or why they decide to assign something the status of, you know, of, uh, of you know, this is this is correct now. We know this is now, we know this to be true now. Um, it is not disputed that it is not true. And, you know, no one else is going to do the experiments anymore because it's just a waste of time. We've done enough experiments to prove this. I think it's inescapable that that is arbitrary. There is an element of... Because I think that's the part that's in subjectivity to a certain extent. And subjectivity will always come with a degree of arbitrariness. Even though I have the impression that then at this point he may say, well, be that as it may... Um what the, the success condition, so to speak, is determined by the success of the predictions or of the explanations we can gain from a certain theory. So it's a sort of the justification for that amount of evidence being sufficient goes backwards, which then raises the question are we sure that we want to think of predictability as the most important criterion to determine whether 
a theory is good or not, or to determine whether something amounts to science, right? Like, because I had the impression that he had, he he placed a massive importance on predictability. I mean, of course, not only him. I think probably it's the way we we, we think about science today. Um, yeah. And I was just wondering whether there are alternatives, whether it's necessarily so whether we can't help but thinking of science as science because it allows us to make reliable predictions yeah it's an interesting point the first thing that comes to mind is he, he he mentions that it's not always about predictability and he gives the example of evolutionary theory which doesn't make any predictions yeah, though he does say that explanations are just retrospective predictions. Right, yeah. Because I guess all explanations are just causal explanations. And so you're just retrospectively predicting what would have happened, right? Yeah. You can see why predictions are so powerful, right? Because saying this should happen based on this and then watching it happen would really make you feel like you've accurately understood what something is. Yeah, but yeah. like, is it like, so basically my question is, mm. can we imagine a conception of science that is not necessarily linked with the notion of prediction? Or it is that, or, or is that impossible? Like in mm. insofar as we talk about science, we must be concerned with prediction predictability. And if we're not, then it's not science, but it's something else. Yeah. Can we disentangle predictability from observation? Because observation is an essential aspect of science. Mm. And because predictability is a future observation. But you wouldn't be able to come up with the laws of the motions of the planets without observing the motion of the planets. Okay. The point is that I think we're looking for something that help us discriminate what's science and what's not science. Mm -hmm. So predictability is one criterion offered. The observation could be another one if we thought of it in terms of there must be a specific as in sufficiently rigorous method. But then there's always the problem that there are, I don't know, contrasting theories that predict the same. Mm -hmm. And, I don't know, I suppose different kinds of methods that are equally rigorous. Mm -hmm. uh, right. And, I mean... I mean, and in those cases, the approach would be to just keep testing both methods, right? Just keep developing tests that are meant to show the shortcomings of one or the other. And to try to show that one is more successful than the other. Yeah, but it's... The predictability in that sense, it would be something like, if your methods, if, if your theory states this, then we should see this. 
I know, I know. Is what I'm what I'm questioning is uh, that this very thought. Uh, when you talk about success, mm-hmm. you you were already using the notion of predictability. Yeah, basically, Th- that is one. I mean, it may as well be that the that the answer to my question is simply that's a silly answer. Of course, you you must think of them together. Given what, well, given that, I would think that observation is central to the scientific activity because you need phenomena to do science. You know, science is not theoretical physics. It's doing experiments or observing things. And then from that, trying to understand what the world is like. I would say that predictability is just a further step of observation. Um, We've observed this. Based on this, we think things should behave like this. Let's see if things behave like this. They do or they don't, whatever. So predictability seems to be like a, a further development of observation or a branch of observation. And you also said to get to know how things really are, which was yeah. also something else that I was thinking about when I was listening to the interview you had with Michael because I was thinking, okay, when we think about objectivity and subjectivity, we feel this grip. We feel that the topic is important and the distinction between subjectivity and objectivity is, is one that has a pull on us and and then one may wonder, well, why exactly? Like, why do we care that much that science returns us objectivity? Why is mm-hmm. it like what's at stake? And of course, difficult question, but maybe what do you think? well, that's the thing. Like <laughs> I was about to say, of course, you understand this better because you have a interests in metaphysics which i do not (laughs) so probably you can't even understand the question why do you care about knowing how things really are Uh, (laughs) i would probably say simply well exactly maybe i don't but then who knows because there's also the objectivity of what subjectivity is like what really is subjectivity probably means what is objectively subjective or something Anyways, I feel like we're... No, I think that's right. That's not, that must be right, right? Oh, sure. I, I also don't want to fall into the jargon trap. <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, personally, of course, I'm much more led towards religious beliefs and what does mean and mm. more than to science, but this is just personal interest. <laughs> So thank you, because it was really nice to having to... But that's, but that's the thing as well about the irrationality of science, that it forces you to hold all these other things that we probably feel are more important to us and to our lives than causal relations. Well, but this um, is exactly what I don't think. I mean, the way he was talking was just like, well, let's make sure that we determine the scope of science very clearly. For example, let's focus just on shallow explanations rather than deep explanations, because this containment exercise is what allows us to um, afford success, i.e. predictability, keeping things simple and not wondering what you were saying, right? Which was not wondering why 
A does something or what A and in A causes B. Um, and, and I think that today we got very used to this flattening of the scope of research and mm. forget that it's a very contained way of looking at the world and seems yeah. to me that actually gained the monopoly of power and everything that is deeper or that has bigger ambitions in terms of explanation is frowned upon as wanting too much or being mm -hmm. stupid. Um, and this idea of progress as predictability became the king of the idea of progress. Yeah. The idea of, I don't know, it just is, it, it seems so important to us to know what will happen if A, much more than why does A, why does A exist or any other question that we could have. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's good. I think you're right. Yeah, I think um, the scientific spirit has definitely pushed out all these other things from the um, the everyday sphere of life, not just the scientific sphere. People but, are much more moved by but, facts. But I appreciate that you said spontaneously that there are more important things to us than causal relationships. Because maybe actually you are right. And maybe even though at a societal level, the the science lens is the winner, but then in mm -hmm. the day-to-day -day life, what bothers <laughs> us or bugs us is not that. Isn't there some statistic which is like, I don't know, 80, 50 or 80% of scientists believe in God? I don't know. I, I would be... I mean, now I'm coming across as the most religious person ever. I just hate the monopoly of science. <laughs> okay. Mm. This is hardly me doing quality research. Apparently, <laughs> around 50% of scientists believe in God. Google says. Let's, let's just say it's around 50%, which seems a reasonable sum. <laughs> That's yeah. interesting. I mean, many people say when they do science, it reaffirms their belief in God, right? Because they find such mm -hmm. uh, uniformity and oh. uh, almost the, the appearance of design. You know, we're going back to the design argument from the 17th and 18th century. It looks like someone has set things in motion. That's how well things work. That it looks as if there is a God or a creator or something. Because this makes absolute sense. But when you said... Uh that it made sense to you, I thought that you would have said something else, which is um, that maybe when you are a scientist, you train yourself to ask the question why, and at a certain point, and, and so you, you track the chain of causes, and at a certain point, as Wittgenstein would say, you reach the bedrock, and there is no why question that seeks a cause that can be asked anymore and there you realize that you need to ask another kind of why question which is a reason-seeking why question yeah uh, so so we got already two ways in which sorry but two ways <laughs> which, uh, a scientist may be may be led to finding scientific mm. explanations um unsatisfying in the end 
That's very good. Aristotle also says that. You see? <laughs> in the physics. Um, so, yeah. Anyways. I think that's also a very good thing. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. Well, we've been wittering on for far too long. Uh, Thank you very much. It was very, very interesting and enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much. I'm really glad you enjoyed it. This is now the third episode I've done on science. So maybe it's obvious that I really like the topic of science and history of science and philosophy of science. But it was really good. It was an excellent book, very readable and very interesting questions discussed in the book. So uh, thank you, Julia. Thank you for your time. Thank, thank you for you. listening to that. And thank you for discussing it. And thank you to all of you, the audience, uh, for following and stay tuned for many more episodes in season three of Please Expand. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.